Welcome to the All Things Physical Therapy Podcast with your host, DPT Steph, your doctor of physical therapy, talking all things PT while bridging the gap between students and the clinician they want to be with an interdisciplinary approach. Thank you for tuning in to the All Things Physical Therapy Podcast. This is Stephanie, your doctor of physical therapy, otherwise known as DPT Steph. On this episode, we'll be talking with Dr. Caitlin Corden, a doctor of physical therapy currently working in acute care and the ICU. I'm so excited to have you, Caitlin. To get us started, why don't you give us a little introduction about yourself? Yeah, awesome. Thanks for having me, Steph. Um, so I uh, got my doctorate from Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. I still live in Atlanta, um, and I graduated with my DPT in 2018. Um, I've stayed in Atlanta, and I work for Emory Healthcare at Emory University Hospital in cardiovascular and pulmonary acute care and intensive care, um, mostly surgical, although with COVID, I have dived back into the medical side, um, and I love it. Um, after my DPT, I did the Emory Acute Care Residency. So I rotated through eight different specialty areas across two different Emory healthcare hospitals, tons of mentorship, research time, teaching time, just really uh, went crazy for a whole year. Um, and my, yeah, my fiance and I um, live in Atlanta with our dog, Sadie, and we're trying to plan a wedding in a pandemic and it's a good time. <laughs> <laughs> so many exciting things going on. Let's just throw a yes. pandemic in the mix. Why not? Why not? Why not? Super, super cool. All right. So let's talk about um, kind of from the pre-PT school into PT school. Did you always know that you wanted to do acute care? What were your clinical affiliations like or pre-PT experiences like? Uh, yeah, no, I had, I didn't know I wanted to be a PT at all through college. I always thought I was going to medical school. I really liked psychology. I was just, I, I had an open mind in general. I knew I wanted to go somewhere in the medical field. At that time, my experience was like all the medical field is, is a doctor and a nurse. Like that's it. There's, there's no one else in the universe. Um, until I dived a little bit more into my allied health coursework in undergrad, ended up getting um, my bachelor's and my master's in exercise physiology. And through that, I got to have both experience in the sports medicine side, um, which was awesome. I was uh, a student athletic trainer for the women's field hockey, women's lacrosse, and men's football teams. Obviously, you know, we didn't have a women's football team. Um, (laughs) So we got lots of you know, sports medicine side, athletic training. Um, There were PTs that were athletic trainers also, and they really mentored me through this whole thing. But my um, love for athletic training was definitely in the acute injury phase, Um, the on-field stuff, the um, injury prevention and rehab side, not so much. Um, So I really liked the the triaging and medical injury um, portion. So then the PTs that I was working with helped me get opportunities both in outpatient PT clinic settings, very traditional, but also with cardiac rehab and inpatient um, physical therapy and cardiac care. And that's really where I fell in love with the heart and um, older adults even although I thought all the way through PT school, I was going to do pediatrics. Um, obviously I like to keep an open mind, but, uh, yeah, I have done a little bit of everything from, from sports medicine all the way through, um, cardiac pre PT. And then since PT school, um, really, really fell in love with acute care and intensive care. I had some awesome professors, 
both are incredible acute care and ICU clinicians, early mobility specialists, and they were the directors of, then of my residency program. And so they've been um, awesome to just so, say the least. Did you have, I'm trying to, I'm trying to follow the story because I think there's oh, sorry, so yeah. many things involved. Did you have a acute care affiliation in PT school? Yes. So all of those examples were from undergrad. That's just how I ended up in PT school at all. And then in, in um, PT school itself, the way Emory's program is set up is you do three short-term clinical affiliations um, in between kind of the courses that they correspond to. So the first one is called general medical, but it's all acute care. And then you do a two-week acute care affiliation. Um, and that is all of the students in my cohort, cohort got two weeks in acute care um, at the same time, which is crazy that they managed to put all that together. But I got to do um, level one trauma ICU as my two week and loved it, loved it. Um, and then you do an ortho and a neuro after that. And then for the long terms, it's actually in the middle of our program and you come back for two semesters after of research and schoolwork and you have to do an acute care long-term through that as well. Um, so we set it up as acute care, um, rehab, um, so multidisciplinary rehab, and then um, outpatient community-based. So the outpatient community-based could be in home health. It could be traditional outpatient. Um, the rehab could be inpatient or outpatient as long as it's a multidisciplinary approach. Like, so some people did children's day rehab. Um, I did inpatient rehab, like adult, very traditional, um, acute rehab based. Um, and I did it at Johns Hopkins. And then my um, acute care affiliation was actually at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, right across the street where I work um, in Peds Acute Care and I fell in love with it. I mean, I still love Peds Acute Care, could still see myself and going back in that direction at some point in my life. Babies are a lot easier to transfer than adults, um, but uh, I still just really loved the heart and that took me back to adults and through residency. But yeah, so I, long story short, I had two acute care affiliations and one um, inpatient rehab affiliation. That's awesome. I mean, there's so much like variety in your experiences as well, which I think is a super, super important take because I mean, you know, you kind of have to take everything that school gives you and consume it all and figure out what is it that, what is it that you may like or don't like? And then what it is, what is it that you truly love? And I know same thing for me, like I went through four affiliations and acute care being my last one and everything. I was like, oh, I enjoy this. Okay. This is okay. I don't hate this. But then when I got to acute care, I was like, yes, this is, this is the money right here. Um, I, so I love your, your journey so far. I think that's awesome. I know one thing that one question I get almost all the time in my DMs, and I'm sure you're now on Instagram, you're going to start getting them too. Why did you choose a residency? So before you answer, I just want to preface this as saying I'm not for or against residencies. I didn't choose one. Um, my answer to people who always slide into my DMs is if you think that there's something that's super, super specific that you want to go for, then I think a residency is the right track for you. So whether that's pelvic health or acute care ICU, like whatever, if there's something specific, but if you want to go in it into it for a certification, 
there's multiple ways to get a certification. I know there's like the people go in for an OCS or SCS, so you don't have to do residency for one of those. Um, completely separate, but also if you like research or want to get into more of a teaching side, then you can also do a residency. So what's your take on all this? I totally agree with you. Um, and I really think my reason for doing a residency was that I wanted to be good, if not great, at a lot of different things. And I wanted to do it fast. Um, so I didn't necessarily... Well, acute care doesn't even have credentials anyway. We we don't have a test we can take at the end to get these super fancy three letters after our DPT. Um, if somebody's doing acute care residency for that, they're going to be sorely upset when they get to the end and realize that test creation is still probably three, if not four years away. Um, I am I am uh, very involved in the Academy of Acute Care, so I will keep you posted if that ever comes up. Um, but no, I really, I love to keep care through my affiliations, I loved pediatric acute care. I just felt like there was so much left to learn that I just didn't have a handle on whatsoever and knew I loved intensive care. And I just, I knew that if I went to get a job anywhere, I would have to take and, you know, pay my dues and take my time and take all these years of experience and probably do continuing education on my own and, all, you know, you have to put in a ton of work to end up in intensive care. I wanted the fast track, truly, because I knew that's what I loved. I wanted to be um, just like my two amazing mentors. I wanted to be an early mobility advocate. I wanted to be pushing boundaries. I wanted to get people up that we previously thought were completely unstable to get up. Um, Spoiler alert, we've done that. um, And we're doing that right now. And that's what I wanted. I kind of fell in love with the other pieces while doing the residency, but I definitely started the residency program wanting to be a really good clinician and not to say that you can't be a really good clinician, obviously, um, without doing a residency, there's only eight acute care residencies in the country. So there's only been about 25 of us go through them. I happen to work with another one of them. She did the Hopkins residency. She's also a fabulous clinician. She leads um, the CCU team. Um, Latasha Harris is her name. She's amazing um, and a great resource for, for me too. But yeah, that was that was my motivation to do it is I wanted, I wanted the specialty experience. I wanted tons of mentorship and I didn't want to have to work on my own time to create that for myself. I wanted somebody else to put it together in a nice neat package, package for me. Um, oh, for sure. Because it's way. like, we know, we know from school too, structure is always best. And like, we've been students for so long. So I know it's so hard um, making the tra- that transition without having like a formal mentor. And I know that's why I think it depends on totally what you want to go into, because I know I was like, I don't know if I want to do a residency because I think I can find a job that fits like a good mentor category. And I knew I wasn't going to settle until I found a job that really kind of fit the description of what I wanted. So I think if you're somebody who needs like a formal structure, I think residencies are great. And I think if also if you kind of have in your head, like I know what I want in a job and you're willing to wait a little bit longer too, if like you don't get it right away, then I think, you know, there's kind of, you can go both ways. And I think that's like the great thing about all the options that we have as PTs and like settings and jobs that are out there. I mean, granted we're in a pandemic, so maybe the jobs are more limited right now. So but you never know. Um, how long was your residency and what was it like going from day one to finishing it out? So 
was it more like every day, every other day was different or every other month was different? Yeah, it was a year residency program. It started in August, ended in August, which was great for me because I actually took July boards. Um, I know a lot of people looking into residency programs for all of you third year DPT students out there are really anxious about taking April boards, but that was not required by my program. And I feel like a lot of programs will hang in there with you if that's what Mm -hmm. you want. Um, But I rotated across um, Emory University Hospital Midtown and Emory University Hospital for my um, clinical portion of my residency. And it really was a little bit different every day, but I'd say the majority of the time, I really felt just like a treating clinician. I went to work, I was in my scrubs, and I had my caseload, and I did my job. Um, Also very similar probably to how you felt as as a new grad therapist, you had somebody either on your rotation or assigned to you that was there for you to answer questions with, um, you know, pick their brain, especially in the first couple months, like you're just orienting, like mm-hmm. you want to know what the code, um, the numbers to all the linen closets is, and you know, where, where do I go to get my badge access? Um, they handled that piece, but then also just like one step further. So I started in orthopedics, um, which at our hospital system, um, the very standard knee, hip, spines are handled in a separate hospital. And then the more complex, um, like oncology, um, knee replacements, um, in-stage renal disease, femur fractures, like the, the people that kind of have extra complexity, that's where I started with orthopedics. I moved through general medical, wound care, um, cardiovascular and pulmonary intensive care, and neuro and neurointensive care in the first hospital. And in that hospital, all the therapists rotate. So I was just rotating a little bit faster um, and then moved to the second hospital where I now have my job. And there the therapists are assigned. And so they stay in their specialty area all the time. So I got to rotate basically between people that were experts in those specialty areas. So I started Um, back in neuro and neurosurgery and all of these specialty areas, they keep the ICUs kind of bundled um, with those. So neuro neurosurge and then did um, NICU, SICU, so medical ICU, surgical ICU. um, That's where our kidney, liver and pancreas transplant land. Um, Did some oncology and bone marrow transplant with that. Then did, Lord, this is a long list, sorry. did um, more liver kidney transplant and then finished where I ended up getting hired, which is cardiovascular and pulmonary in that intensive care system, um, which is very heavy in our hospital. So they a little bit biased the length for that, um, kind of compressed the kidney liver a little bit. Um, so there was like a little bit of fluctuation here and there on not just how long I spent in each rotation, but also who was my mentor. Um, my cardiovascular and pulmonary mentor mostly worked on the floors. So then he set me up with the ICU specialist for the end of that. Um, and I, I had some fantastic mentorship. And so, like you said, um, anybody can get a great mentor at, at their job. And that's especially something I would recommend that anybody look for in their job. I mean, there's no way to be a good clinician without learning from the people who have been experts at this. Um, so I got eight of them across a year. Um, so it was just a little bit faster and just a little bit more broad, but, um, in those mentors, I had a, um, oncology specialist to neuroclinical specialists. So people that really were not just experts from a sense of like 
career longevity, but also had sat for those advanced um, exams and had mentored other residents. So the Emory neuro residents also rotate through our acute care system. So, I mean, from the most part, it's very focused on clinical time, mentorship, but you get that time set aside for your mentor to physically go into the room with you and watch you treat and give you feedback. I mean, for the entire yeah. first year that I practiced, I That's at awesome. least once a week, if not multiple times a week, had somebody literally watching me do everything I did in that patient session and sit down afterwards and fill out a form and tell me how I did about it, which was horrendous and miserable <laughs> and so anxiety producing for the first like month. But after that, I got over it. Um, but I want to, I want to harp on too, because this also, like, I think talking about the residency is great. And I also wanted to have you on to compare now post-residency, like your work, I would say I'm air quoting here, but like your work environment, yeah. um, as a non-resident, I guess, or like full-on clinician and compare it to like what I experienced as a clinician in my hospital and what I know, like I have friends experiencing in their hospital too, because it's so hard. There's not many acute care therapists on social media. And I don't want to say like, oh, this is acute care and list like all of the units in my hospital and talk about how my hospital runs. Because I know it's totally different from even a hospital, another hospital in New York City, let alone probably your hospital or someone else's yes. hospital across the country. For sure. So I'll put, I'll start and say kind of how my flow has started and then I want you to compare yours as well so for example um I started I had like a supervisor my manager who we had weekly meetings whenever I had questions I'd write them down throughout the week and we'd meet every single week at a designated time for about 20-30 minutes answer any questions I had um and I started on a general medicine floor um, unfortunately, was there for much longer than anticipated because that's where all the COVID patients started and were kept for the longest period of time, even though our whole hospital became COVID at one point. So I did not rotate um, after a usual three, four months and switch my floors because um, that's how we typically work. Um, didn't have really any formal mentorship because it's on general medicine floor. So you kind of should know the basics at that point. And it's like more of, I wouldn't say simple acute care because they're very elderly, they're very sick sometimes, but met, like, I guess the more textbook gymnastics is not really there compared to like a neuro unit, right? Yeah. Um, over the summer, I switched to uh, more like abdominal surgeries, plastic surgeries, vascular surgeries, and our mentorship, when you change units, you need to get like signed off on these patients, even though you might've seen them in a clinical or a prior job. So we have kind of what you described, um, a supervisor who has some kind of specialty and they come observe us and talk out the case beforehand to make sure we know what to do. We know about this patient. And then at the end, they'll say, okay, you're good to see these on your own now, or we need to see more, a couple more to really get you like making sure you, you, you got a grip on these kinds of patients. Um, and we have, they try not to rotate. If we have like three or four therapists in one unit, we try not to rotate all three or four off the floor at the same time so that there's one more like senior person there. So if people have questions, they can rely on them and so forth. And our ICU is actually kept as like almost a completely separate staff. Um, So we don't rotate into the ICU until it's like several years that we've been in the hospital. And then maybe if a position opens up, then we can kind of transfer into it. So super, super different. And I know like 
hospital size. I still don't know how many beds we have. All I know is we have two ginormous towers and there's like almost 10 floors in each of patient units. So we got a lot. <laughs> yeah. And, and I pra practice now in two different hospitals and like what you've described kind of is similar to how one of those hospitals run is run. And then my hospital is just the one that I currently work in, although I, you know, I've worked at both it's just totally different. So you're exactly right. So even within one healthcare system, you can right. have a completely <laughs> different staffing system, completely different ICU system, patient profile. I mean, you can, you can run the gamut no matter what. Um, I will say like probably the difference I think between residency and just like in job mentorship, which is probably the purpose of a residency, right? Is the quantity and the quality of the mentorship. So the purpose of residency mentorship is not to check the boxes saying that you're a safe and quality clinician and that you will grow as a clinician on your own separate from formal mentoring, right? Like that's the idea. For, a, for mentorship within a residency program, it is how can we make you an expert in this field in six weeks? So how can we make you an expert in medical and surgical intensive care unit in six weeks? Even though you've only been a treating clinician for eight months, I'm going to ask you all the hard questions right now in front of this patient, in front of the MDs. I'm going to force you to present. I'm going to force you to like, it's really pushing. And I will say I asked for it, you know, like yeah. if I had been in a position at the time where I had been uncomfortable with that. I probably could have said, Hey, Primrose, can we like back this up a little bit? Um, so I think everybody's program is different, but it really is about pushing you beyond being safe, competent, and able to handle, you know, what's basically thrown at you and go the next level. Like, mm -hmm. how can you be an advocate for our profession or like, you know, cause each area has a different system. Um, Primrose is a mentor that I had in the medical and surgical ICU. She rounds daily with the charge nurse and the MDs to advocate for which patient she wants consults on. Like that's not normal. Most, you know, I feel like it should be. She has set herself up to do that. She created that for herself. So she basically put me in those shoes and said, do it. Like the system is set up for you there. You may not know anything yet, but do it anyway. Um, and, and also just from a quantity standpoint, we had three to four hours per week set aside for mentorship. Um, and that's because I was not an employee of the hospital. I was an employee of the university. And so productivity wise, mine didn't matter. They weren't mm -hmm. paying me. Um, so even from a logistical standpoint, I felt very protected, felt very safe to ask my questions. That was what my job was set aside to do. Um, and they were essentially volunteers, very encouraged volunteers. Um, but their productivity and their time was, was protected because if they were in the room with me as the treating clinician, they got the productivity unit for it. Um, so we really worked out a system that was safe both for the mentor and the, the mentee, um, the resident, so that like everybody could learn and grow and, and not feel like that overhead pressure of that we all feel now. Mm -hmm. That's my like comparison to now is productivity standards. Um, you know, staff meetings, like just the stuff that has to happen to get your day done. Um, you don't feel like you're pulling away from people's time, um, which was really nice. Um, now looking back, I don't think I appreciated it as much in the moment as I do now. Um, right. What is your productivity? So we'll touch on that a little bit too. So post-residency, obviously, of course, you know, what is your day-to-day -day like productivity wise, because I know typically in an ICU or critical care setting, it's on the lower side that I would say like more of an acute setting. 
Um, you'd think so. It would be really, really nice if it was. We, For us, um, it is at least. <laughs> yes. Um, we do not change productivity standards depending on the criticalness of your unit at my specific hospital. Um, I think that probably speaks to the criticality. Is that even a word um, of our patients across the whole hospital? So all of the neurotherapists are also treating in the ICU. All right. of the general medical therapists um, not all, um, most will float into our medical and respiratory ICUs. So everybody's got a little bit of that high level patient on their list. I will see in the cardiovascular side, we do tend to stay in the ICU and then follow some of our patients to the floor. So we are a little bit okay. more ICU heavy on our team. Um, but it's not, I feel like it's not standardized. It just, it's, it depends. Um, <laughs> that's another thing we could talk about. Um, but yeah, so we, we bill on where we do our productivity on units. Um, we're expected to meet 17 units a day. I can usually do that if I'm seeing between six to seven patients a day, um, with a handful of evals, usually two to three, um, because my sessions are longer. Mm-hmm. I am, I am generally in the room with my ICU patients at least an hour. Um, yeah. so instead of the gen med floors or anywhere else where even just, you know, cardiac surgery floor, I can be in and out of an eval and a treatment session in, in 15 minutes if I really mm-hmm. wanted to be. Sternal precautions. Can you walk with a walker? Great. Go home. Um, but my, I then go downstairs and I've got a 24 year old girl who's on ECMO and we're walking and it takes, it takes for an hour to do that. Um, so that's, it's, it's nice to have a little variety, but it definitely is labor intensive and time intensive. Yeah. And I think nice the for one, exactly. And I think the one thing that I love about acute care and you might agree or disagree, but the one thing I love is that there's so much variability in patient presentation, even though their charts may look completely identical. So you might think that on paper, you're like, oh, I've had this kind of patient before. They're going to be fine. They're going to be up. They're going to be walking. You walk in and it's like someone who can't even sit up. They're like struggling to breathe or they're so orthostatic or I don't even know, like case management, the whole functional history wrong. And you're like, oh my God, what is going on? I have no idea. Mentally, or they're just like, totally delirious. Delirious, and they usually yes. look great. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> you give like, a seven-year-old they... woman a little uh, a UTI. Next thing you know, she's dependent and can't move at all. Oh, yes. I know. I totally agree. Totally, totally agree. I have been burned so many times thinking, "Oh, I can just pick up this quick eval at the end of the day on the Friday." Because it's never quick if you pick it up at the end of the day thinking it's going to be quick have patients who refuse I know I always write to the team or they're like why isn't this person working with PT and I'm like well they uh don't want to for like three days and then they're like all right we'll go in we'll nudge and then there's like a constant battle between is PT actually doing their job slash is the patient is it the patient yes Yes. And we say some teams there are, there's street cred that you can build and there's some teams that there's not. Mm -hmm. Um, Hospital medicine, I feel like is a team you can't really build street cred with because they have so many residents and they rotate so frequently. So I feel like, you know, the next thing I know, I'm learning a new name and a new face. They have no idea who I am. They don't necessarily trust that I did give it like the best try. And yes, I get a reconsult immediately the next day. Like, please come back and see this person. Or, you know, they see my refusal note from the morning, they see my page, and then they say, um, 
oh, you know, I just told them that they really need to work with you. Can you come back? They're willing to do it now. No, I just, I can't, but I do. I usually do. I usually, I'm a soft heart and I will usually just come right back. And, but if I hear abuse a second time, <laughs> forget it. Um, yeah. But then there are some teams that I really do build a really strong rapport with. Um, I sit on the heart failure, um, advanced heart therapies um, board. Um, and so it's, it's all of our cardiologists, our surgeons, um, social work, nursing. I'm the PT representative. I have our OT representative. We, um, as a team, decide who is appropriate for either consideration for heart transplant or LVAD. Um, and in working with that team, we also follow our post-op patients. And so that's where I bring my concerns of, hey, Mr. So-and-so is getting weaker and he hasn't gotten his heart yet. He is has tons of abdominal pain. Uh, what can you do to support my efforts? Because all he's seeing is me walking in every day and demanding that he get up and he's in tons of pain and he doesn't want to and he's starting to refuse at this point. Um, so that's where I feel like that rapport just... Um, really helps not just with the patients, but also with the team, because they'll walk in and say, Hey, you know, Caitlin knows what she's doing. Um, she's never going to ask you to do something that's unsafe. We know you're hurting. We'll do our best to manage that. But you got to keep cut. You got to keep pushing because otherwise you can't get this heart. Um, I mean, it's currently an issue I have right now with a specific <laughs> patient. Um, so it's, I think the collaboration is really nice. Um, the more I build it, um, the, the more I see the benefits of it. And then I get a little frustrated when I can't with other teams because yeah. you just have that high turnover rate in some teams. You just, there's no way to know everybody. Yeah. And that's true. It's, it's, a, it's a barrier for sure. And I also want to touch on how have you managed with patients and discharge and have you had the unfortunate barrier of you want someone to go to inpatient rehab or you want someone to go home and then, or to a SAR and or subacute rehab. And then there's like an insurance issue or a physician issue, or they need wound care and the place they want to go to doesn't provide wound care or they need antibiotics and so forth. Have you run into these issues and what, how have you essentially overcome them? Uh, I run into them daily. I feel like, especially lately with COVID, I mean, a lot of the SARS and um, rehabs around us have closed their doors or said, you need two negative COVID tests and they'll find any reason not to take somebody that's borderline or uninsured or, you know, whatever. Um, I have lately um, been digging into evidence to say like, okay, what can I do to get someone home and have it be okay? Mm-hmm. Um, we actually had a very robust conversation with some of the social workers on the bad team because their caregiver restrictions are so tight. Um, but it's like, do we really need to have these caregiver restrictions be so tight? Um, discharge planning is a nightmare for a bad patient. Um, and I'm using this example because these are a lot of the patients I work with. Um, they can't go to subacute rehab. They can only go to our inpatient rehab and then home. And mm-hmm. if they're not ambulatory at that point, we're asking this caregiver not only to change dressings daily, um, but also do mobility. Like that's that's a lot we're asking of these people. Um, but so I'm just trying to be really creative with safe and effective discharge planning. It's like the best way I can put it. Um, and then if I'm if I'm really, really sure that somebody is not going to be safe to go home and the team really wants them to go home, I absolutely will never change my racks. I will be like, yeah. that patient can leave. I get my advice. Um, I have run into issues lately 
where I feel like what the team will sometimes do is show up in the patient's room and say, hey, do you want to go to rehab or do you want to go home? Of course, they're going to say they want to go home. Like, who wouldn't want to go home? It's the, it's the holidays. It's COVID. Like, of course, you want to go home. And so then I have to do a little bit of that back education saying, hey, these, I, it's not just I want them to go rehab for the fun of it. Like, these are the reasons they're not safe to go home. I need to advocate to them about that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's, that's a huge thing too. Right. Because it's like, you also have the side of it too, where they, I don't know if it's just like my hospital, like with the social worker case manager too, but there's like a business side to it where if you have a readmission and the person goes home after the person goes home, then like you can get kind of essentially docked because of insurance and, you know, that kind of profitable side. So they like almost push subacute rehab if the patient is truly borderline but like kind of has some family support so it's like I don't know if they fully need rehab because they have good support at home maybe we can get them home but then they're like if they're borderline and have a chance of falling do we really want to send them home so then you have the whole like teetering back and forth and it's like give me just one more PT session I promise we can like we'll we'll, we'll do it next the next day we'll do it tomorrow we'll get better we'll get, we'll get stronger we'll figure it out I've definitely done that lately. I think I can, we can all advocate a little bit more for a slightly longer length of stay because there's nowhere to send these people right now. So I've kind of made the argument like, Hey, they'd have to be waiting for SAR for weeks. If they're sitting here, can you give me two more days? Can I get them walking just a little bit further? Um, and, and, you know, let me prove that they are safe to go home. And then I do kind of throw that back and like, Hey, if they readmit within 30 days, this is, this is hospitalization is not paid for. Um, so let's try to do everything we can to prevent that. Um, and actually this is a fun little segue, my research group. Um, so I did, I started research through my residency program. It's like pieces we didn't touch on. There's so many things. Um, I did research, I did teaching, I did didactic work, I did all kinds of stuff. But one thing that has really stuck into my clinical life that is fun, I don't get paid for it, it's like literally volunteer labor of love, is my research projects. Um, and one that started was looking at the impact six-click score in ICU for cardiac and cardiac surgery patients, and can we predict where they're going to go? We use the AMPAC with all of our patients. Oh, brilliant. It's no yeah, we have because we don't decode anymore. Um, right. so we have the so, breakdown of like how many visits or how many times the patient should be seen, depending on where they score on the AMPAC. <sighs> maybe you can come to my <laughs> hospital and convince people that this is worth doing, but that's what I'm trying to do. Um, so yeah. we did the impact just on a valve for a lot of these patients. So that's all the data that we had. And we were looking at, okay, does that a valve score tell us enough that we can start predicting discharge? And in 91% of CT surgery patients and in 92% of CCU patients, we can predict whether the patient's going to go to a facility. So not SAR versus acute rehab, that, not that nuanced. Um, but a facility versus home. Wow. So that first initial PT visit and the cutoff score, which is really what we want to know as clinicians, right? Like what do you score them and what does it predict um, is about a 15. So if they're scoring 15 and above, odds are they're going to be here long enough and have enough therapy to get to where they're safe to go home. And if they're below that, then odds are they're going to need some sort of rehab, even that early on. Um, So that's, it's, I, this, I hated research classes in school. Absolutely hated them. Um, it's the only like almost failing class I snaked by in PT school was research methods. And now here I am. Um, 
doing research and continuing it. Um, and I mentor some of the PT students through it. Um, but it's because I thought this was valuable as a clinician. I wanted to know. Um, so now we're uh, now we're spreading the love to the MICU and we're taking a look at the MICU. Um, and then I've also now started a project on COVID. Um, so <laughs> that's that. something we're looking at too. So with the research um, into COVID, this really started as a, again, just a, a clinician's curiosity. Um, I had been working with the university at this point for a year with uh, mentoring students through research. Um, and basically they, they get the experience of being on a research project. They do all the data collection, all of that without having to do like the researcher side and dealing with the IRB and the longevity of the project so that they can graduate and be done with it. Um, which I really appreciated as a PT student when I had to do this. And again, as Emory's program, we had two full semesters after um, clinicals to come back and do this. So they get to, to spend basically a year um, working on this stuff. But yeah, we were finishing up last year's group. That was probably mid-May, early June. And we were thinking um, we have more space to add students to uh, my research mentorship group, um, what other things could we be looking at in this crazy time? Of course, we're gonna think about COVID. Um, and we'd already had the experience of looking at ICU level data with the impact group. Um, we, had, we had a good understanding of how to get into these patients' charts and we you know, had created an IRB. We were like, okay, let's go for it. And what we didn't know is the Emory system had actually fast-tracked any research that had anything to do with COVID through the IRB system. So we submitted our proposal and we were up and running in, I swear, like three weeks, which is unheard of. Usually these things take forever. Um, right. So what we're looking at is um, patients who are diagnosed with COVID end up in the ICU across any of the Emory Healthcare hospitals that use the same EMER system, which is four of them. And what happens to them while they're there? Do they get PT, OT, or speech? And where do they go? Um, and that's, that's basically what it is. Um, uh, so we're, we're pulling tons of data from charts. Um, anything between um, oxygen levels at admission through discharge, lab values. I mean, we really sat and sifted through tons of literature my students did, um, to look at what was relevant, what was coming out. It was all brand new, hot off the press kind of research. And then really taking a step back. Okay, we've seen all of this literature come out saying that uh, carbon dioxide levels are important at knowing um, what a patient's medical outcome is. Is anybody looking at their functional outcomes? And of course, the answer was no. Um, mm -hmm. There were some papers from the Australian groups that were looking at PT utilization, which I think was really important that they came, that came out first is like, yes, we are important. What do we do when we get in the room? Um, why do we advocate for therapies using precious PPE, using precious, you know, uh, time in a patient's room, resources of any kind? Um, and I think we, we were able to hurdle that barrier a little bit. And then um, now it's like, okay, what impact are we having, um, if at all? Are these patients just so sick that we're not making any impact at all? I really doubt that, um, but we could see that. Um, what I'm guessing is what we see is the patients that 
get physical, occupational, and or speech therapy may be the sickest ones, uh, but not so sick that they don't make it out. They're going to be the ones that um, have been on a ventilator for multiple weeks without weaning. Um, I've got a handful of patients right now on my caseload that are have been here so long that they're no longer on COVID precautions. Um, yeah, we have that. short PPE in their room anymore. Yeah. Um, so those, I think, are the patients that um, we're really going to be seeing. And as one of my mentors um, who has worked everywhere from Mass General to Emory, um, but she was, she was in the scrub dress era um, of original chest PT and ICU early mobility at Mass General, where she would hook up an Ambu bag to a patient's ET tube to get them up and walking. Um, that was their portable ventilator. She was like, this is the kind of things that we saw back then because what was known was bed rest was what cured patients. And we didn't recover and rehabilitate until after the fact. She's like, I haven't seen this level of immobility and sedation and proning since then. Yeah. Because we just don't do it anymore. Yeah. But, but these patients have been so sick that any weaning trial, any extubation trial was immediately like, oh, nope. Tubes going back yep. in, you're going back down. Um, it's just the nature of the beast a little bit. And it's very bizarre having all of the patients across a huge ICU all have the same diagnosis. It yeah. is it is sci-fi level stuff. Um, so that's, that's what we're looking at. Where do they go? Um, their level of burden on their caregiver, um, anything from assistive device use, gate distance. I mean, you name it, we're, we're pulling it and we're going to see what comes out of it. Oh. That's awesome. And I think like we're actually doing something more similar to that too, where we're doing the outcome measures. So with all of our COVID patients, we're doing, if they are able to perform 30 seconds sit to stand on a two minute step test and, you know, taking into consideration the oxygen, if they still need assistance while performing these tests, like how long it took to complete them, what, you know, it was, it's like heart rate, blood pressure, RPE, all that stuff. And I think it's just, it's crazy to think that something as simple as timing someone doing sit to stance for 30 seconds could be so debilitating and yes. you know, that they're so weak. I mean, I fought and fought and fought for one patient that I had in the spring, who was one of our original COVIDs. He ended up being there for 85 days. And I was like, get this man into inpatient rehab because he could not we, we were spending like almost an hour with him every single day and like in the acute care realm, that's not heard of at Unheard all. Unheard of, yes. And um, the fact that we were still doing this and we still couldn't even like, I think by the very, very end, we just started getting him to like hold himself up sitting at the edge of the bed. And it's, it's unbelievable. I there mean, are really some patients, exactly. And there's some patients who I had that were like that at start, but then they bounced back so quickly and then there's this guy who's like, he could not bounce back to the life of him. We were like, what more can we do for you? Um, yes. And we've, and we've had like the sequelae of COVID too. So not just like the ICU immobility, um, ICU acquired weakness, um, PICS picture, um, but also we've, we've really seen a lot of that hypercoagulability part of COVID. So we've had tons of stroke. I mean, tons of stroke because of COVID. Um, tons of vascular issues because of COVID, lots of, luckily not like limb amputations, but vascular like reconstruction, essentially. Um, I've had a couple of spinal cord infarcts. Um, so where this person now looks like a partial spinal cord injury. Um, so, and, and then a handful of brain injuries from like agnostic brain injury. So, I mean, 
if the if the laying in bed for two weeks doesn't get you something else well like seems like you just can't win yeah um, and you're not even in the ICU like so you're seeing these people like down the road when they're sitting on the floor just waiting to go we somewhere. essentially became mini like step down units like not fully acute but not fully ICU because our ICUs were so overwhelmed and there's like where are we supposed to keep putting these patients I mean they were opening up units that technically like we have been closed for construction or because we have a new tower now we don't need them anymore and like it's just a disaster I mean it really is just heartbreaking um yeah every day yeah and I know it's like thank you for being on the front lines and I know that like it's not easy um by any means whatsoever and you know there's a vaccine coming and you know hopefully people continue to be more responsible wear masks socially distance holidays are coming up so try not to gather with grandma and grandpa and do it virtually through zoom I know it's tough we all want to see each other and hug each other but I promise you will thank yourself later um I want to start wrapping up so any final tips for students that you have that either want to do a residency or acute care or even research um I mean just just dive into where your interests are I mean truly um if you find something that you love or are passionate about or really excited about, dive in, reach out to people that do it, reach out to people that have done it, um, have experience in it in any realm and just find out more and just keep digging into those curiosities. Cause that's really what's going to lead you to where, um, I think your heart lies. I, I think that PT students, um, a lot of my classmates, me included kind of pigeonholed ourselves into where we thought that we wanted to practice. And I've even now had, um, Co, uh, you know, now they've become coworkers because they've left the outpatient realm and have come to acute care because we're awesome. Um, and they, they just, you know, you find ways that you, you love what you do. But I think, um, instead of thinking like, okay, I love this neuro class, so I'm going to love working in outpatient neuro. Think about what you love about patients. What do you love about people? What do you love about your life? um find a way that you can have a work-life balance um I judge myself daily on my inability to do that (laughs) um but it's it's a work in progress and exactly yeah and I think it's just you got to find a way to have a life love what you do and um not go crazy and that's kind of the bottom line I think that's true for students pre-PT all the way through like practicing clinicians absolutely um, myself included where can people find you if they want to slide into your dms contact you with any questions comments yes um so i'm at the acute care pt on twitter and instagram and then the acutecarept.com is newly up and running um and it's got some blog posts and some resources please reach out and oh and the acutecarept at gmail.com i think we're gonna have to do a part two because i feel like we have so much to talk about so possibly to be continued continued stay tuned for more You guys heard it here. This is Dr. Caitlin Corridan, the Acute Care PT. But thanks for joining and we will talk soon. Yep, thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the All Things Physical Therapy podcast. Make sure to leave a review and subscribe to stay updated on new episodes. You can find more episodes like these on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And to stay up to date, follow dpt.steph on Instagram or go to www.dptsteph.com.